Thanks for tuning in to the Crew at UGA podcast. We are so glad to have you with us. Crew exists to call students to know God, grow in their faith, and go to the world. If you would like to get more connected with Crew at UGA, or if we can help you in any way at all, go to the show notes and click on the link, or follow us on Instagram at Crew at UGA. All right, let's get started. Let me pray for us and bring us in. Jesus, God, I pray that tonight you would move. I pray tonight you would speak to each and every one of us. And God, I pray right now uh, that you would break down any false images we have of you, Lord. I pray that tonight you would show yourself for who you really are, that you are the God who remembers. Speak to each and every one of us, I pray. Amen. Amen. Well, again, guys, we're so excited y'all are here. We're going to be continuing tonight with our series, But God. And kind of what we're doing in this series, uh, the reason for the name, is there's this phrase all throughout Scripture in both the Old and New Testament uh, that gets dropped uh, frequently. You'll hear it, But God. They'll be talking about something. There's a passage going on, and then in the middle of it, you'll see this phrase, But God, and then it keeps going on, and the whole tone of the, uh, the message seems to shift. And what's going on there, each and every time, if you read Scripture... When this phrase comes up, something is always going on. God is always taking a false image of him. He's always saying, you look at me like this, but this is who I really am. You look and you think I'm this, but this, but God, this is who I really am. He does this over and over and over again. One of my favorite times, it's just an example of this, happens in Isaiah 55, if y'all will put it up. Um, in Isaiah 55, right, it's actually the passage, you guys might have heard this phrase, God works in mysterious ways, or God's thoughts are higher than our thoughts, his ways are different from our ways, you might have heard these phrases. It's interesting, God kind of compares the ways in which people would assume that means, right, that God is smarter than them, or things aren't going to go the way they think, but what God actually says at the end of the phrase, he says this, uh, instead of a thorn, you think I'm a thorn bush, but really what I am is this Hebrew word, I'm a barash tree. Sorry, I'm Jewish, so it comes out Hebrew. All right. He says, I'm a barash tree. Now, there are no barash trees in existence now. They're extinct. Um, uh, so if you actually read Isaiah 55 and read the end, it'll like translate it to cypress or myrtle or juniper. Uh, it's trying to convey a meaning. The barash tree in the ancient Middle East was the most beautiful and valuable tree there was for three reasons. First and foremost, it was gorgeous. It flowered in and out of season. So there were always flowers, gorgeous flowers on this tree, no matter the circumstance. Secondly, it produced fruit and it smelled incredible. So you, it fed you and it was beautiful and it was pleasing. But here's the craziest thing. They grew in two locations. They grew most successfully in two of the most unlikely places. The first was the frozen tundra and wilderness. They'd grow in barren rock where there was nothing but ice and snow. And the other place was right in the smack dab middle of the desert. And what God is saying, and what every single one of these but God phrases, whenever you see it in scripture, what he's saying is this, you think I'm an ugly, prickly thorn bush. Your image of me is like an ugly, poisonous weed, but I'm the most beautiful, precious, powerful thing, and I want to show who I am in the worst situations of your life. And this is what we're talking about with but God. We're examining over and over and over again these different false images of God that we build up. 
and how he's shown us who he really is in spite of that. Tonight, we are diving into the first ever but God phrase in all of scripture. We're going back to the very beginning. We're going back to Genesis, y'all. So if you've got a Bible on you, I want you to open up to Genesis chapter 8. We're in verse 1. We're going to be honing in on verse 1. Uh, the whole passage, just so you all know, so you know where I'm going to be jumping, is going to be in chapter 6 through 8. But we're going to start at the center. Genesis 8, chapter 1. It's there on the screen if you need it. But God remembered Noah and all the wild animals and all the domestic animals that were with him on the ark. And God made a wind blow. Some of your translations might say the spirit blow over the earth, and the waters and the chaos ended. But God remembered Noah. Tonight we're talking about the God who remembers. Our false images of God treat him like he forgets, but there is one thing God says he always does, one thing that we never do. He remembers everything. But You won't really understand what this but God is addressing if you don't understand the story. So let's dive into this. We're going to be diving into the story of Noah. Now it begins in chapter 6. So if you want to open up, we're going to be starting in Genesis chapter 6, verse 5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of humanity was great on the earth and that every inclination and the thoughts of their hearts was only evil endlessly. And the Lord was sorry, or he grieved that he'd made humankind on the earth, and it grieved him to his core. Some of your translations will say it broke him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out from the earth the human beings I've created, people together with animals and the creeping things, the birds of the air, for I'm hurt that I made them. But Noah found favor in the sight of the Lord. Let me give you all some context. Uh, This story of Noah is the story of this man who survives this cataclysmic flood. And we actually know the story of Noah is historically true because every single ancient culture across the globe all have stories of this ancient cataclysmic flood that's talked about here in scripture. Uh, From the ancient Mesoamericans in South America all the way to the Tao empires of ancient China, every single culture in history has a story of this cataclysmic flood from the early eras of humanity's time when it reached a point in its technology, when it reached a point in its advancement in creativity and artistry that was its highest point, at least up to that point, potentially ever in human history. And in the midst of all of that, for some reason, it was destroyed in a cataclysmic flood. So we know again that While the story of Noah doesn't give us all the details, it never names this culture, never names the city. Some cultures called it Atlantis, some cultures called it other names, but we know on some level it existed, and we know it was destroyed, and we know that at this point, at least in human history, potentially ever, human beings had taken their gifts of creativity, artistry, technology, to the highest point that they ever thought possible right before it all fell. And Noah's story isn't really concerned with the details of the history, it's concerned with the why. And so we're brought into the beginning of this story with the actual heart and why behind it. See, this is Genesis, just a few chapters before God created humanity, and it says that he created them in his image. 
And one of the things that's implied there is God is a creator. Part of being made in his image is that God gave them his very, God gave us his very ability to create, to form. And so again, art, technology, innovation, these are God-given gifts. It's part of what it means to be in his image. It's part of him entrusting his very substance in us. And we see here what this ancient culture decided to do with the most precious God-given gift. This first way we see them using it says it saw the wickedness of humanity was great upon the earth. That's an ancient phrase, guys. It means that they took technology to its furthest extent and they used it as a way to abuse. If you can imagine human beings taking their gift of technology and innovation and using it as a way to abuse people, a place and a culture where using technology to encourage things like rape, to encourage things like lust and cruelty was not only acceptable but encouraged. I don't know if that sounds too far from home, but if you can imagine a culture that would choose to use its technology for the purposes of abuse, this is what they were doing with their God given gift and it says this God remembered he saw all of it and he watched as his children took his gifts of innovation his very image and used it to abuse one another they didn't stop there the next phrase is this he saw that every inclination the thoughts of their hearts were only ever evil Again, it's kind of get, you get lost in the weeds if you don't really understand what that's saying. It's an implication of their heart versus their facade, their appearance versus their reality. He's saying this, hey, they used all their artistry. They used all their skills instead of becoming good, instead of being real, instead of using their God-given gifts to connect with one another. They used it to put up a profile. I don't know if you can imagine a society that would use technology to do that but it might be a little close to home. If you can imagine a culture and a society that is using all of this God-given gift instead of to seek God, instead of to connect with one another, to sit in their brokenness, but try and put up a fake me, put up a fake human, put up a fake identity in front of it, never actually addressing what's going on in their lives. Just putting up resumes, putting up facades, putting up fake ideas, putting up a reputation. But this is all they did. And God, it says, saw all of it. He watched his children killing themselves, putting up fake selves in their place, using all of his gifts instead of to heal, to destroy themselves. And again, it says it broke him to his core. But they didn't stop there. If you read in verse 13, God personally says this, I've seen their works, I've seen what they've done with my gift, and they all use it for violence. We think of violence only as a physical thing of killing. But when he uses that word, he's saying this, what they're using with their God-given gifts is ruthless competition. Everyone is trying to be on top. Everyone is using my gift to tear each other down, and he's watching people kill each other physically, mentally, emotionally, and spiritually. 
using their words, the gift of language, to put each other down emotionally, using their gifts of status to break each other socially and spiritually, using their gifts to literally kill each other. And God, the creator, remembers. He sees humanity trying to forget, trying to ignore, trying to use all of his very gift instead of to address the issue, to put up all these walls to him to the point where he says he's crying out, but no one will listen. God is literally crying out, will someone listen? And there's only one person who does. In verse 8, we're told his name was Noah. And so Noah, in the midst of this dark and broken culture, is the one person who listens to God as God remembers all the sin that humanity is desperately trying to forget. But God remembers. So God calls Noah. Um, this is in verse 13 through 14, 17, and again 22. Check this out. So God said to Noah, I've determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with this violence because of them. Now I'm going to destroy them along with the earth. Make yourself, therefore, an ark of wood. Put rooms in the ark. Cover it inside and out with pitch. Okay, I'm going to keep going. Verse 17 through 18. For my part, I'm going to bring a flood of waters on the earth to destroy it from under heaven. All the flesh which has the breath of life, everything that's on the earth is going to die. But I will establish my covenant. That means I'm going to promise this to you. You will come out of the ark. You, your sons, your wife, your sons' wives with you. So Noah did it. He did all that the Lord commanded them. God is calling and crying out, but there's only one person, the leader of one family, who's actually bothering to listen to him, and his name's Noah. Now, we actually know something about Noah. We actually find this out after the story of the flood. We found out a little bit about Noah's personal life, and we found out a little bit about his family. Noah wasn't actually that great of a guy. He wasn't really that different from everyone else in this culture. We find out later he was an addict, he was an alcoholic, and he struggled with some lewdness. We go even deeper than that, we find out there were a lot of issues in his family. His son at one point, his, one of his sons, Ham, is said at one point to uncover his father's nakedness. That's a very sensual term in the ancient world. There was some very dark stuff going on in Noah and his family. The only thing that made Noah any different from every other person in this broken culture and era was that Noah bothered to listen. Because God makes to Noah this promise, I will bring you out. He says, I'm gonna make a covenant with you. That word for covenant, we've lost what it means. It means a promise I'm willing to die for. God says, I'm willing to die if it brings you out. That's my promise to you, just trust me. And he asks him this, build an ark. Now, here's a funny thing. I know a lot of y'all grew up in the Bible Belt, and a lot of y'all have heard about the story of Noah and the ark. Uh, the word ark in Hebrew, it means box. God wasn't telling Noah, build this beautiful and elaborate boat. He didn't give him some great construction plan. He literally said, just take some cheap wood, build a box. 
take some cheap pitch, throw it on there, just get in the box, I'm going to bring some animals, and I'm going to keep you safe. I will bring you out. He doesn't ask him to do anything. He literally just asks him, will you trust me with your life? Will you trust me enough to listen? Because I promise to bring you out. We actually find out, if you read through this whole chapter in chapter 6, Noah takes the cheapest and worst wood. He doesn't know what he's doing. Takes the cheapest and worst material. He literally doesn't finish the door. Literally, it says God closes the door for him. He is that bad at following God. The only thing he does is trust God when he says, listen to me and I promise I will save you. That's all he does. And it says God closes him in and then the floods come. This is in chapter 7. We're starting in verse 17. Then the flood continued 40 days on the earth, and the waters increased. They bore up the ark, and it rose high above the earth. The waters swelled and increased greatly on the earth. The ark floated on the face of the waters. The waters swelled so mightily in the earth that all the high mountains were put under it. All of the whole heavens were covered. The waters swelled above the mountains, covering them 15 cubits deep. That's miles and miles. These mountains are swallowed up. And all the flesh died that moved on the earth, the birds, the domestic animals, the wild swarms on the earth, and all human beings, everything on dry land, in whose nostrils was the breath of life, died. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground. The human beings and the animals, the creeping things, the birds of the air, they were blotted out from the earth. But Noah was left, and those who were with him in the ark. So the, other, so the waters swelled on the earth 150 days. But God remembered Noah. But God remembered Noah. All the wild animals, all the domestic animals, all of them were with him in the ark. And God made a wind. He made his very spirit blow over the earth so the waters subsided. I want you to imagine this. You are Noah. The waters are coming. You are in a box with animals all around you getting sick for 40 days and 40 nights going up and down. Again, this is not a pretty boat. There are waves crashing over your little box. You are getting spun around. You're getting thrown up and down endlessly, day and night, 40 days, 40 nights, and all you've got in the darkness are your thoughts about the fact of who you really are, what you've really done. God himself, before he made his promise to you, said it'd just be easier to wipe you out. And you know he's right. If you're really honest with yourself, if you remember what you know God remembers, it'd be easier for him to just let that box drown. All you've got is God's promise. If you can imagine what would go through your mind in the filth and the chaos of the waters. In the ancient world, they believed that water was a symbol of cleansing and chaos. He's in the middle of the dark, in the middle of this cleansing chaos. But God remembered Noah. He sent his very spirit. The word for breath and spirit is the exact same in Hebrew. So it says he sent his spirit to come upon the ark and come upon Noah. And he brought 
them out. In the midst of all of our brokenness and forgetfulness, over and over and over again, we see this. We forget, but God remembers. This is the image of God he wants to replace with anything and everything that's gotten in the way of him, in your hearts, in your minds, in your souls. See, we think God's like us. We want to forget our sin. We don't want to address it. We just want to forget it. We use technology. We use innovation. We use creativity. We, we use our artistry. We use every means possible to just forget and glance over our brokenness. But God remembers. He sees it all. He sees every moment of abuse that we've endured and that we've heaped on others. It says in scripture, he holds every tear we cry like a precious diamond. He has seen and felt and endured every moment of abuse you have put on someone else or that has been put on you. He doesn't stop there though. He remembers our facades. He remembers who we really are even when we've forgotten with all the false identities we try and build, with all the profiles and fake selves we try and pursue, try and put on other people, try and present to everyone else. But he sees through it. He says he sees us killing ourselves and it breaks him to the core. He sees every moment of violence, that violent kind of competition when we use whatever he's given us to put other people down to try and accomplish something for ourselves. We try and forget our sin, but God remembers it all, and it breaks him to the core. So much so that he's not content to leave us there. At the end of the story of Noah, God puts a rainbow in the sky, and nowadays, in our culture, we're trying to redefine what that rainbow means. But for 4,000, actually, if you include the history of Noah, 6,000 years of human history, when human beings saw a rainbow in the sky, it meant something very specific. It's a God-given promise. He said this after the flood. He said, this time I swallowed up humanity in water. The next time I'll swallow it up in my blood and my spirit. And 2,000 years ago, he did that. On a cross on a hill called Golgotha, he swallowed up your sin. Not because of anything we did, but because he's the God who remembers. He says this in 2 Timothy chapter 2. Paul is talking about why God would go this far, and it says because he remembers his promise. We forget God's word, but he never forgets. He never lets go. He promised 6,000 years ago to humanity, I'm covering this again in my blood and my spirit. And this time I won't swallow the earth and water, I'll swallow your sin. And while we forgot and continue to forget, he has never forgotten. And just like Noah, it's not about our performance, it's not about what we construct, it's not about the material we use, it's not about how good we do it, it's literally just this question, will you trust his promise because he's never going to forget it, even if you do. He never forgets. He always remembers our sin. He always remembers his promise. 
and he always remembers you. Some of y'all feel like Noah in the ark right now. You have trusted God, and it's landed you in the middle of some dark, disgusting boxes. And all swirling around you is a cleansing cacophony of chaos. Everything is dark and gross and exhausting and crazy. And you're wondering, some of you, why am I here? Some of you are wondering, is he going to come good on his promise? Some of y'all are wondering, should he just get rid of me? Should he just let me go? We tend to forget this, but please remember, God remembers you. And when you've given up on yourself, remember this. He wants to send his spirit over you. It is his promise. It's the promise he gave Noah 6,000 years ago, and it's the promise he gives to you now. But God remembers you, even amidst your swirling, cleansing chaos. I want to leave you all with one more story, one more ancient Hebrew story. A couple chapters ahead in Genesis, there's the story of this woman, Hagar. Hagar is actually a really terrible person. She gets a really bad rep the rest of the Bible, and she deserves it. Just being real. She was a really, really disgusting woman. Uh, she, I'm just being honest. I'm just being honest. The Jews don't like her for a reason. Um, Hagar was a servant, the most trusted servant of a princess named Sarai. And this princess uh, was chosen by God, and her husband, Abram, was also chosen by God to carry his covenant. But Hagar, uh, and, and when Sarai trusted Hagar with her most precious secret and with her husband's heart, and Hagar betrayed him and betrayed her used all of her God-given gifts to heap abuse and to put up facades and to enact violence on her people who had blessed her, protected her, brought them into her house. And it got so abusive and so violent that at some point, finally, God said, hey, you just need to let Hagar go. And so Hagar's own sin, her own stuff, landed her out in a desert. And as she was in that desert, realizing, I deserve this, this is where I belong, she remembered something. God promised, no matter how far you go, I will save you. Sound like a familiar promise? So she cried out, hey God, it seems like you've forgotten me, but if you're anywhere around, please hear me and save me. Instantly, she opened her eyes and he was there. And she realized in that moment something. It wasn't that God didn't care. It's that she was too calloused to pay attention. And she gave him a nickname. A nickname that has lasted for almost 6,000 years, y'all. For over 4,000 years of human history. God has kept this nickname. Elroy, the God who sees you. We forget but God remembers. He remembers all of our sin. And he remembers his promise to take it all on himself. Because he also 
remembers and sees you. And if you let him, he will save you. He will send his spirit and calm the waters of whatever chaos, whatever dark, whatever crazy cacophony of cleansing you find yourself in, if you'll let him. God remembers. Let me pray for you. Jesus, you are good, and even when we forget, even when we're faithless, you are faithful, you will not deny yourself. God, I just pray over each and every one of us. Lord, I pray, God, that we would see our sin like you do, and we realize that it breaks your heart. God, I pray we'd realize that you're faithful to your promises, that you promised to take all of it on yourself, and I pray, God, that we trust you to actually do that, to take it all on yourself. God, I pray for each and every person here who's in the midst of a season of darkness, who feels those waters of chaos consuming them. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you right now would just breathe and blow over each and every one of us, and that you would calm even the wildest of our storms. We pray this in your name. Amen.